to Romans chapter 10. Would you Romans chapter 10 in the word of God? As you're turning, would you stand to Romans chapter 10? Romans chapter 10. What a privilege and honor it is to be back at Heritage Baptist Church. I thank God for this place and for this church and for the way that God is using this church and this body right here in San Leandro. And I'm so thankful that you're here this morning. It's a good group on a Sunday morning, a good group of folks. And I believe that God wants to do something powerful right here, right now in our midst. I, I bring you good news from my family and from my home. We've uh, been traveling a good bit lately all across the country. We were just this last week in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, God did an amazing work Friday night, just a couple of week, uh, days ago. We were able to see several people come to Christ. And uh, you know, uh, after the service, there was a lady that came to me and said, please pray for my friend. She, she's from another religious background and she, she uh, needs the Lord and she doesn't have peace. And I said, I will pray for her. And she said, would you be willing to speak to her? I said, absolutely. So she went and got her after the service and we sat down on a little park bench and uh, explained the gospel to her. And uh, you know, she just wept her way to the cross. And what a blessing that is. That never gets old, ever. And I thank God for the privilege that he's given us to travel and serve the Lord in, in, in amazing ways. So I'll look forward to telling you tonight about some of the ways God has worked in our tent meetings that we've had over the last couple of years. And I know many of you have been praying for this very thing. And so I want to express my gratitude to you. Romans chapter 10. Notice, please, what the Bible says in verses 8, 9, and 10. Romans 10, verses 8, 9, and 10. The Bible says, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Father, speak to our hearts, challenge us, and change us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to know, those of you that are seated here this morning and listening to the sound of my voice, when you were in high school or even in college or even beyond that, what type of question you preferred on your test? What type of question did you prefer on your test when it was given? Was it fill in the blank, true or false, multiple choice, matching, or essay? True or false, uh, fill in the blank, uh, multiple choice, matching or essay? How many of you said, preacher, I like essay questions? Is there anybody here that liked essay questions? Not a one, not a one. I, I every once in a while liked essay questions because I figured if I didn't know what I was talking about, if I just keep talking and writing, eventually the teacher would just overlook it and give me an A-okay on it. Uh, how many of you like fill in the blank? Let me see your hands. You say, I, I preferred fill in the blank. Okay, we've got one. Okay, we're, I hope that we'll have more participation by the end of this survey. Uh, uh, how many of you would say, I preferred true or false? True or false? All right, good. 50% chance you get it, 50% chance you don't. How many of you like matching? Anybody here like matching? Okay. How many of you chose multiple choice? Multiple choice. Multiple choice gets it. You know, it's nice to be able to see some options. And you know, I think God understands that. So God gives us a multiple choice question in Romans chapter 10 where we can deal with our sin. Now, our sin problem is the problem. Make no mistake about it. 
I just told a lady yesterday on the, on the plane, I said, you know, ma'am, I said, what I tell people everywhere I go is that we all have three things in common. No matter what our background, no matter what our age or social status, no matter where we live or what language we speak, we all have three things in common. Number one, we've all sinned. Number two, because of our sin, we're all going to die. Ten out of ten people in the Bay Area are going to die. Number three, we're all going to stand before God. And I said, ma'am, if we haven't dealt with our sin the Bible way, God's way, then it's not going to be a happy day when we stand before God. And so I want us to see this problem as it's laid out in the Bible and how to deal with it. I want us to understand the multiple choice that God gives to us as sinners on how to deal with our sin. I'm speaking this morning on the subject, God's multiple choice for the sinner. God's multiple choice for the sinner. And I want you to see that there are four options that we have in dealing with our sin problem. Now, it is, make no mistake about it, it is the problem. It's not a problem. It's one of, not one of many problems. It is the problem. Every problem in this world stems from either directly or indirectly the sin problem. Every difficulty that we face stems from, is birthed in somewhere either directly or indirectly, the sin problem. And it's astounding to me, it is shocking to me, it is amazing to me that not more people are talking about it. That we're not having a national conversation as is so often lobbied today uh, about it. Why? Why is this not the centerpiece of our conversation? It ought to be on every news network. It ought to be on every discussion when we talk in the Congress and in the Senate and in the State House. It ought to be on every, uh, on every social media feed. How can I deal with my sin problem? I ask people everywhere I go, what is your solution to the sin problem? What's your solution to how to deal with your sin? And God gives us four options. Remember, only one is right. Not two are right, not three are right, not four are right. Only one is right. And it begins in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Would you follow? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Thank God for Paul. And thank God for his heart's desire. He said, look, my desire for my dear Jewish people, the Israelites, is that they would be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they would be saved. Paul was a Jew. In fact, Paul wasn't just any Jew. Paul was, you could consider him SEAL Team 6 Jew. He was a part of the Pharisees. They, that sect was very, very religious. These would be the uh, highest in the level, uh, in, in all the levels. These would be the men that had performed the necessary uh, discipline to reach and attain a certain point. He said in Philippians chapter 3 that he was of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, that wasn't a bad connotation in his day. It was a high-ended connotation. These men were experts. They wore their garments a certain way. They had a certain size hem. They had certain, uh, certain scriptures that they wrapped around their hands and around their hearts and around their foreheads. They practiced the law with great discipline. In fact, the Bible says when they tithed, they tithed of mint and anise and cumin. Ladies, have you tithed recently of your spice rack? I mean, they did. They took 10% and set it aside. They were diligent in every way. They were diligent. They followed the law in every detail. 
But he said, all those things that were gained to me, those I counted loss. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may be found in him not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God through faith. And so Paul is writing here and he says, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. In fact, Paul was such a good Jew that he was of the part of the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees, that was going around and persecuting this new group called Christians or followers of the way. And he said, I am going to find them and imprison them and if need be, kill them. And he was certainly standing right there while Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we should sit up. We should take note. We should understand what the Bible is saying because this is of utmost importance what Paul is conveying in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. I tell people that are unbelievers that want to know more about the Bible as I've given them the gospel and encouraged them to be saved, I want them to go to Romans first. And I encourage them to read Romans. Romans 1, 2, and 3 indicts everyone, man, woman, boy, girl, Jew, and Gentile. Romans chapter 3 at the middle of the chapter starts to turn toward the solution, which is the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4 makes a hard case that salvation is not by our good works. It is uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And that it is, if it is of faith, it is not of works. If it is of work, works, it's not of faith. Romans chapter 5 again puts an exclamation point under the fact that that Jesus Christ is the only one that saves and we get his salvation only through faith. Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 tell Christians how they can be victorious and what they are and what they have in Jesus Christ and that they're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 deal with the Jewish people in God's economy. And then Romans chapter 12 through the end of the book deals with practical Christian living. And so here in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, while he's dealing with the Jews and how they fit in God's economy, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Do you know Paul is setting us an example when he says this? Really, our heart's desire and prayer to God for our people is that they would be saved. You say, well, preacher, what's our people? All right, we'll start with your family. Every person here that knows the Lord Jesus as their Savior ought to be saying and praying, oh God, save my family. There's an old Southern song that sings, oh, the circle won't be broken by and by, Lord, by and by. That's speaking about family and household salvation. Lord, save all my children. Save all my grandchildren. Save my mom and dad. Save my aunts and uncles. Save my brothers and sisters. Oh God, save my family. That's a good place to start when we're talking about my people. But then he goes on and he says, my heart's desire and prayer for God to Israel. He's speaking about his, his nationality, the people of Israel, the Jewish people that he loves so dearly. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Wouldn't that be a good thing? To say, oh God, save everyone in my area. Save everyone in my neighborhood. God, save everyone in my workplace. 
race. Save everyone that's a part of my people, my own nationality, or my, my country. Oh God, my heart's desire and prayer to you is that my people would be saved. Would to God every Christian had that burden. Would to God every Christian had that fire. Oh, that that would burn and spark and ignite in this place. That every Christian would say, oh Lord, I want everyone in my family and everyone in my community and everyone in my nation to be saved. Now, do you know there are right now approximately 330 to 350 million people in America? That's a lot of people. I remember a few years ago when it just turned 300 million. But there are a lot of people in this country that need to be saved. And what would be wrong with praying, Lord, save everyone in this country? Oh, now, Brother Smith, you're just one of these preachers getting us up all pie in the sky kind of religion and getting us to pray for something that'll never happen. Well, why not pray for it? Isn't it God's will that everyone in America be saved? Isn't it God's will that everyone red, yellow, black, and white, that they're precious in his sight? Didn't Jesus die for all? Yes, he died not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if we had, we don't, we're not, uh, we're not uh, suffering for an overabundance of Christians who are praying for everybody to be saved. In fact, I'd say we have relatively few. Did you know that in the 1858 prayer revival that sparked on the Fulton Street prayer meeting in New York, that that revival began to spread all across the country? Jeremiah Lanfear did not know that in New York City itself, there were several other prayer meetings that were taking place unbeknownst to each other. His prayer meeting is the one of great mention, but there were many prayer meetings, many such prayer meetings happening all across the city. And when he started the prayer meeting, he set down some ground rules that you could only testify or pray for two to five minutes no more so that everybody would have a chance. The first week that he met, there were six men that prayed, and most of those came at the latter half of the hour. It was the lunch hour in Manhattan, New York. The next week, there were about 20 or 30 men that showed up. The next week, there were about 50 men that showed up. The fourth week, there were a hundred men at least that showed up, and most of them were unsaved. Then they began to meet not just, week, just weekly, but daily during the week, so that there were places where there were literally thousands of people that were saved. There was a well-known news reporter that sent one of his, or newspaper mogul that sent one of his news reporters around, and he said he got in a horse and carriage, and he tried to make it to all the prayer meetings within the hour, and he couldn't make it to all the prayer meetings, but in just the prayer meetings that he was able to make it, there were literally thousands of people meeting in New York City and praying. A businessman from Philadelphia came up to that prayer meeting or came up to do some business in New York. He was a Christian and he came to one of the prayer meetings and he said, I want to have this in Philadelphia. So he organized and prayed. And so that as a result, he went back to Philadelphia and started what became the world's largest prayer meeting. And that prayer meeting spread all across the country. I used to think, Pastor Fong, that that prayer meeting only affected the north. It did affect the north. It went from New York City down to Philadelphia, over to Pittsburgh, across to Cleveland, even Chicago. But it did not just stay in the north. It went down to Baltimore, down even to, down even to Charleston, South Carolina, over to Vicksburg, Mississippi. This was 1858, 1859. So that in one point, there were hundreds of thousands of Christians meet, meeting and praying and others that were seeking the Lord for salvation. 
In just a six-month period, there were 50,000 people that had gotten saved as a result of the Fulton Street prayer meeting. By the end of the meeting, there were well over a million people that had gotten saved by the end of the effect. And do you know, hear this, 15% of the American population was reached through that revival. 15%. What if God's people began to pray and believe God and earnestly seek the Lord and God began to move in such a mighty way in this country that 15% of the American population got saved right now? Well, I don't think God would be against it. In other words, we ought to have a heart's desire. One of the reasons these moments are set aside and these days are set aside here at Heritage Baptist Church is to stir up and spark in the heart of God's people a longing and an unadulterated desire for their people to be saved. America. And then after a while, they say, well, I don't want just my family to be saved and my community to be saved and my city to be saved. I want the whole world to be saved. Do you see how this spreads? It's the heart cry and the heart throb of God. And it is the heart cry and the heart throb of everyone who is truly following God. And so that's what Paul says in verse 2. He speaks specifically about the dear Jewish people. And he says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now let's just pause and agree around this point. Zeal does not equal truth. Zeal does not equal accuracy. There are many people that are zealous, but they haven't found the truth. Uh, you can say it this way. Sincerity does not equal truth. There are people that are sincere in what they're doing, but they're sincerely wrong. In fact, some of them are so sincerely wrong, we would look at their conclusions and their decisions and say, well, that person's really mixed up. What, what if I said to you, uh, now after the service, I would like everybody to gather outside and uh, there's going to be coffee and donuts while I go to the top of this building and jump off. I want you to see me fly. Now, I, sure, I am sure that some of you probably are so sadistic, you would go out in, in the courtyard, you would get coffee and donuts just to watch it. But you know, if I climbed to the top of this building and I gathered myself right over in the corner and I said, all right, watch everybody, I'm about to fly, some of you would say, no, Brother Smith, don't do this. You're going to not fly. You're going to go down, not up. You, you would somehow try to convince it. Man, get underneath him. He's going to make a mess down there. We're going to have to clean it up afterwards. You, you get there. Something bad wrong is going on. I mean, you would say, what is wrong with Brother Smith's thinking? I mean, he, he must have gotten something. Something must have happened at the 30,000 feet level on the airplane ride over yesterday. What is wrong with his thinking? You, you know, I could be sincerely imbued with the desire that that's what is going to happen. I'm going to go up. But when I jumped, the law of gravity would declare I was going down. <laughs> you see, folks, I can be sincere. I can be zealous and be wrong. And that's what he's saying here about his dear Jewish people. Verse number three then gives us our first option. For they, speaking of the Jewish people, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, folks, whenever you read the Bible, you ought to always read the Bible with a pen or a marker nearby. 
so that you can mark words that are mentioned over and over again. And you ought to mark them. When you mark them, you ought to see the words or forms of words that are similar. Because if you find words that are similar in a passage, God's trying to get something across. Look at how many times the word righteousness is used. Three times in verse 3. One time in verse 4. Another time in verse 5. Another time in verse 6. Another time in verse number 10. So in just a short amount of time, seven times the word righteousness is used. Again, it brings us to the problem that we're trying to solve, the sin problem. You can't get to heaven unless you have gotten rid of all your sin and replaced it with sufficient righteousness. You can't get to heaven unless you've gotten rid of all your sin and replaced it with sufficient righteousness. That this issue of righteousness and sin is the problem. So he says, speaking about the Jewish people, they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they, they're not familiar with God's righteousness, so they go about to establish their own righteousness, and they've not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So the problem is, they are, don't know what the righteousness of God is, so they establish their own righteousness, and they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. All right, that's the problem. Option number one, if you want to deal with your sin, is you can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Option number one, you can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. And that's where most people are today. They've chosen option number one. Maybe they've chosen it because it's their heritage, or they've chosen it because it's family tradition, or they've chosen it be because it looks good, or they've chosen it because someone that was kind to them adhered to option number one. Option number one, follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Now, I want to say for everyone listening, this first option is completely ridiculous. It's not... It's not logical, it's not reasonable, it's not sensible, and it absolutely is not biblical. It is following a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules is completely ridiculous. He's preaching, what do you mean? Well, let's just examine this in history. If you want, you can choose any religion that you desire that does not have the Bible as the only foundation and Jesus as the only Savior. And you will find this first option. Now, they'll give you a list of rules. They might be something like this. Uh, pray five times toward Mecca. Take a holy pilgrimage. Fast during a special month. Give to charities, and depending on who you talk to, wage a holy war. They call it the five pillars of Islam. Now, there are some rules. Will those rules, in large part, make you look like a good citizen? Probably. Will they make you stand out from the crowd and from the rest of the world? Likely. Will they cause you to contribute to society? It's possible. Will they get you to heaven? Absolutely not. Or it might be rules like this. Go to a special city. Get baptized for the dead. Wear holy garments. Get married in a temple. Take a two-year mission. Will those rules make you look like a good member of society? Probably. Will they cause you to stand out from the rest of the crowd? Likely. Will they cause you to, in some way, contribute to the good of the world? Maybe. Will they get you to heaven? 
Absolutely not. They might be rules like this. Go to the local confessional booth at the local church and pray and confess your sins to a priest. Pray through a, a series of beads and already pre-written prayers. Uh, make a holy pilgrimage. Abstain from this mortal sin and this venial sin and make sure you know the difference between the two. Will those rules make you a good member of society? They may. Will they cause you to contribute to the whole of the world? Possibly. Will they make you stand out from the rest of the crowd? It's likely. Will they get you to heaven? Absolutely not. Here's some rules. Take incense and burn it to your ancestors or to uh, Siddhartha Gautamu. Bow down to a great big statue of the Buddha. Uh, order your life so that in the end there's good karma and not bad karma. You would want to come back as, for instance, a beautiful dove, not a snake. Will those rules cause you to be a good member of society? Maybe. Will they cause you to stand out from the rest? Possibly. Will they make you so that you contribute to the whole as a hard worker and a productive member of your culture? It's likely. Will they get you to heaven? Absolutely not. I've got news for you. You can't even be a good Baptist and try to do all the rules that are set up within, say, a Baptist church and depend upon those and get to heaven. On Friday, I was able to eat with a friend of mine named Ray de Guzman. In 2002, I had the privilege of leading him to Christ. And he had been a pretty good Catholic. Now, he'll tell you that his wife was a better Catholic than he was. Uh, but he would go to church with her on Sunday. And when he prayed, he wouldn't pray the way she did. She would pray all the, rule, pray all the rote prayers very diligently with great discipline and with great fervor. But he'd pray and he'd be done. She looked over at him and said, how can you be done? I'm still on, on the second prayer. Oh, he said, it's easy. He said, I just pray the first prayer and I say, same as above, same as above, same as above. <laughs> so he wasn't quite as good as his wife was. His wife was a much better Catholic than he. But through the kindness of a Baptist preacher who showed kindness to them and to their family that a Catholic priest would not show, their Catholic priest... They said, you know, we should start going to this, this Baptist church. She got saved while she was uh, helping in the vacation Bible school. She was making snow cones for everybody. And God convicted her heart through the preaching and through the vacation Bible school. She got saved. Then her son started going to a Christian school. And then her husband started coming. And, and he started helping and going and getting visitors and bringing people to church and taking them home after the service. But he was lost. And he will tell you that he had stopped being a good Catholic and he started to try being a good Baptist. That doesn't get you to heaven. Watch this. If you follow a set of man-made rules wherever they may be found that are independent from and even contrary to God's word, you're not going to heaven. And it really is an exercise in futility. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Let, let's just say, just for sake of illustration, that... Uh, that, that I want to play 
baseball. You know, I, I played it a little bit. I think I played it for probably four years when I was growing up. And so I have some experience and I love the Minnesota Twins. So I went to a lot of their games when I was growing up. And boy, we had a great time watching Kirby Puckett and Kent Herbeck and some great players in the day. And uh, I said, you know, I'm 45 and I don't want to waste my life not really accomplishing something. I want to accomplish something. I'm going to play baseball. And since I'm here in, in the Bay Area, I want to play for the Oakland A's. So that's my choice and that's my get my team. And so I start doing push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups and running. And I start building my core, uh, just really going after it. And I, I start going to batting practice and I start catching and throwing the ball. I mean, I'm really getting into it. And then I apply for the, for the farm leagues and I get into the farm leagues and then I earn my way up into the minor leagues and I even pass Tim Tebow up and I get to the Oakland A's. And I'm all excited, man. I get my green hat with my bright gold AA and I get my uniform and I've, I'm ready to go. I got my cleats and I step up to my very first at bat and I hit my cleats with the bat even though there's hardly any dirt on them and I get my first up to bat and here I am right next to home plate. I'm staring the pitcher down and he's staring me down and all of a sudden he pitches the very first pitch. My first pitch of the year. Rookie Dwight Smith is up to bat. And instead of stepping into that swing and pulling my bat around and knocking it out of the park, you know what I do? I drop my bat and catch the ball barehanded. I look at the catcher and say, bet you never seen that before. And he says, yeah, you're right. And then instead of throwing it up and hitting it out of the park, I turn around and I throw it into the stands. And then instead of running from home plate to first base, which is what normal baseball players do, I run from home plate to second base, right across the pitcher's mound, knock the picture down, slide into second base, get up and dust myself off, and look at the second baseman and the umpire and say, bet you've never seen that before. And they say, uh-huh. <laughs> now what are they going to do to me? They're going to drag me off the field. They're going to call a timeout. They're going to throw me down in the dugout. In fact, the coach is going to be so disgusted with me, he's going to say, get him out of my sight. Where did we get this guy anyway? Throw him down in the clubhouse. And they take me down to the clubhouse, and all the way I'm bragging about my escapades. All the way I'm telling men how that I caught a 95-mile-an-hour fastball with my bare hands, you know, and I'm trying to rub the feeling back into them. And I get down into the clubhouse, and I say, hey, I said, you see that? That was some kind kind of ball playing. I mean, I'm still really full of myself thinking that it's great. And they say, you're crazy. That's not the way you, wh where, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I say, that was excellent. Do you see, I made it to second base and they weren't even close to getting me out. And they say, what's the matter with you? That's not the way you play baseball. And with indignation and with a bit of cocky flair, I bow out my chest and say, it is where I come from. <laughs> now folks, at that moment, they will know I am verifiably crazy, right? That's when they start to text the men in white jackets to carry me away. Where do you come from? There's no place on the planet where they play baseball like that. Where do you think, what in the world is wrong with this guy? Now, listen to me carefully. I don't mean any disrespect, but I want to say it emphatically so no one misunderstands. There is not a bit of difference between that and the first option. Follow a set of man-made rules, independent of the playbook, independent of the rule book, independent of God's book. There's not a bit of difference between that way of playing baseball and the first option. 
man-made religion that is not based only upon the Bible and presents only Jesus Christ as salvation, that that way of salvation that has neither of those, mark it down, is completely ridiculous. And yet people go year after year, month after month, week after week, and day after day to the hog trough of religion thinking that it will satisfy and it never has and it never will. Option number one is follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Option number two, now we're going to come back to verse four, but, but look at verse five for just a moment because it presents our second option. It says, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. All right, option number one is follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Option number two is keep God's rules or God's law perfectly from birth till death. Keep God's law perfectly from birth till death. He's a preacher. Are you serious? Yes. Look again at verse number five. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. That means righteousness attained by keeping the law. That the man which doeth those things, what things? The things that are in the law, shall live by them. There is life if you will keep God's law perfectly from birth till death. In fact, this case was made in the book of Deuteronomy when Moses says to the people, I present to you life and death. Do what is contained in the law and you'll have life and you'll have blessing. Don't do it and you'll have cursing and you'll have death. Take your Bible here and turn, keep your finger in Romans 10 and turn back to Romans 2 and let's see how this is very clearly laid out. Now remember how I said that in Romans 1, 2, and 3 all men are indicted. Romans 1 indicts and declares all Gentiles to be guilty. That is, anybody that is not a Jew is a guilty sinner. That would be most in this room. Romans chapter 2 indicts and makes guilty anybody that is not a Gentile. That is, all Jews as guilty sinners. Romans chapter 3, in case we missed anybody, declares all men to be sinners. And right here in Romans 2, while he's declaring all those that are Jews to be guilty sinners, he says in verse number 6, speaking of the Lord, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Did you know God will judge you by your deeds? And he will prove to you on judgment day that your deeds never were enough to satisfy his righteousness, and they never could be enough to satisfy his righteousness. But he will still judge you by your deeds. You say, I don't really want to be judged by my deeds. Then get saved. Because then God takes all your sins, past, present, and future, and buries them in the depths of the sea. It's the only way you can avoid being judged by your deeds. Otherwise, if you want to play on that level, then God will play with you on that level. He will judge you by your deeds. And he will prove to you that you did way more bad than you did good as far as his standards were concerned. And that not only your bad was bad, but that your good was bad. He says all our righteousnesses are his filthy rags. Look at Romans 2, who will render to every man according to his deeds, verse 7, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
So if you want eternal life, then through patient continuance and well-doing, go after it. If you want glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life, then you can have it through patient, patient continuance and well-doing. Look at verse number 10. Glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there's no respect of persons with God. In other words, if you want glory, honor, and peace, you can have it if you'll work good. So, option number two is keep God's law perfectly from the moment you're born to the moment you die, and you'll have it. You'll have eternal life. He's a preacher. Who has done that? I haven't. You haven't. No one has. You'd be right. There's only one person who has, and his name is Jesus. So you're saying, wait, wait. The Bible is saying that if I keep the law perfectly from birth till death, I'll go to heaven and not go to hell. That's what the Bible's saying. But that's not possible. Right. Option number one, following a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules, is completely ridiculous. Option number two, keeping God's law perfectly from birth till death, is completely impossible. It's not remotely possible. It's not somewhat possible. It is completely impossible. Keeping God's law. How, how are you doing with that? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Has there ever, ever in your life been anything that has taken a priority over God? The true God, the God of the Bible? Money, perhaps. Relationships, perhaps. Religion, perhaps. Your own day-to-day -day duties. Your children. Your parents. Commandment number two, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down and worship any golden image or any image which you've set up. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image and bow down to it. Have you ever had idols? Yesterday I went and got a haircut close by. While I was getting a haircut, there was some idols in that haircut place, the barbershop. I didn't know what to do. They looked interesting, but they were up on a shrine one was an old man with some kind of a crown, a long robe, and his assistant. And one was a cat that just waved at me the whole time. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that. I just kept looking away, and it kept waving at me. And every once in a while, I looked back and waved at it too, but it, it just kept waving at me. I did, the whole time I was getting a haircut. And, you know, honestly, I prayed in that place. I said, God, I pray that you'd bind the false lies of these idols and the demons that are behind them. Right. Commandment number three, thou shalt, not make it, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you ever used God's name in an empty, vain, futile, disrespectful manner? In a joke or as a swear word? Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In the Old Testament, it was Saturday because that was the day the Lord rested from his work. And it was a picture of Christ who would become our Sabbath. So in the New Testament, Sunday is the day we set aside to honor the Lord, to worship him. Commandment number five is honor thy father and mother. Have you always honored and obeyed your mom and it? Always, even when you were in third grade? Now that's a searching question. Commandment number six is thou shalt not kill. You said, preacher, I think I've made one that I haven't committed. That's, that's one I, I'm, I'm good on. But Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. 
Commandment number seven is thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, I, I think that's another one that I think I'm okay with. But Jesus said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. Commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. And the opposite of covetous to he- covetousness to help us understand covetousness is contentment. Have you always been content with what you have? Or have you been striving, thinking that if you had more money and the bigger this and a nicer car and a fancier that, then you'd be really happy? That's covetousness. Now, how are you doing on keeping those Ten Commandments? Perfectly from the moment you're born to the moment you die. You say, I've broken a bunch of them. And not just once, but again and again and again. That's exactly the point. Option number two is completely impossible. Well, you see, what's option number three? Well, it's right here in chapter two, Romans two and verse number eight. Remember, God is rendering to every man according to his deeds, verse six. And verse number 11, there's no respect of persons with God. So verse eight says, unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also the Gentile. All right, commandment number, or option number three, here it is. First, follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Second is keep the law perfectly from birth till death. Third, here it is die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. Option number three is die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. He said, well, where do you get that? All right, the last two, three words of verse number eight and the first three words of verse number nine. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. For who? To those who don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. To those who do evil of the Jew first and also the Gentile. And look right here. Would you look right here for just a moment, ladies and gentlemen? Really, it's only this option and the next that are legitimate. Legitimate ways to pay for your sin. Real options. The first one we've studied, follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. It's completely ridiculous. The second one, keep the law perfectly from birth till death, completely impossible. But this one, die, go to hell, pay for your own sin. I was talking to a young lady on the campus of the University of Tennessee in Memphis just a year ago. I was out street preaching with some friends and giving gospel witness, and she identified herself as a lesbian. But she listened so very calmly and respectfully as as we discussed the gospel. And at the end of the conversation, she said, well, she said, I've listened to what you have to say, but here's my conclusion. I got myself down into this pit, so I'm going to get myself out of it. And she walked away. And my heart broke for her because the only way to get out of that pit is to go deeper into it, and that's to die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. But if you're paying for your own sin in hell, it's too late. This is what the Bible teaches. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 8, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. 
This is not man's idea. This is a Bible idea. God made hell, but he didn't make it for you and for me. He made it for the devil and his angels. But no one that follows the devil and his angels, no one that does their bidding, no one that rejects the pardon offered through the Lord Jesus Christ will get to heaven. You must die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. And the thing that breaks my heart is that there are millions in this world who think the first option is their option, what they're going to do. That's the way they pay for their sin when they're going to die and immediately begin the third option. I was speaking to a lady in Italy a few years ago, and she said, I'm not changing my religion. I've been this way ever since I was a little girl. Now I'm 80-some years old. I'm not changing my religion. I said, well, ma'am, I'm not really here to talk about all that. But I would like to ask you a question. Who pays for your sin? She said, well, I guess I do. I said, how? And she went through a list of being a good Catholic, and undoubtedly she was a very good Catholic. I said, after you've done all of that, are you absolutely sure that all of your sins are forgiven and that when you die, you're going to heaven? And she hung her head and shook her head no. I'm glad to report that by the end of the day, she had placed her faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and was gloriously transformed by the gospel. You say, preacher, there's a fourth option. Yes, there is, back to Romans chapter 10, and it is super exciting. Look at Romans 10 and verse 4. I told you we'd come back. Remember, there's an ignorant righteousness, verse 3, man-made. That's option number one. There's a righteousness from the law, which is of the law, verse number 5. That's trying to keep the law. Verse number 4 says, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In other words, there's another righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. Verse number five, for Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But, contrasting word, the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or, who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? He said, preacher, what's he talking about in verses six and seven? He's saying, don't waste your time on foolish questions. That's what he's saying. It's a foolish question to say, who shall ascend into heaven and bring Christ down? That's foolish. Christ has already ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is finished and complete. It's foolish. You're not going to bring him down. He's saying, Don't, who's, who's going who's to go down and bring him up from the dead? That's foolish because he's not dead. He's alive forevermore. That's foolish to ask foolish questions. I was in Italy, and there was a man named Fabrizio there in 2010. And he came, and he was asking me all kinds of questions. He says, now, now, this is after the first service that he heard me preach. He said, don't you think we should just do more than say we believe we should have a life to back it up? I said, yes, I believe that. He said, well, I do too. He said, in other words, if we say we believe in pure water, then we should be against air pollution and trash incinerators. And I kind of had to recalibrate because I wasn't expecting that. He was a liberal, I mean liberal socialist is really what he is, was, and, and lost in his sin. And he began to ask me all kinds of questions that were like, hey, right from the playbook of liberals here in America. And he was singing their praises, by the way. I said, Fabrizio, what if I came to Italy and I said on the soccer field, where's first base? How do I hit a home run? He kind of smiled. He said, well, that would be silly. That would be silly, wouldn't it? I said, why? He said, well, it's the wrong question. I said, right. 
I said, Fabrizio, you're asking all the wrong questions. I said, you're lost and headed to hell, and the only question you should be asking is, what must I do to be saved? That's the only question you should be concerned with. And the Bible has an answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, folks, listen. That's the only question that matters. Don't waste your time with foolish questions. Verse number 10, verse 9 says, back up to verse 8, what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth. And in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In other words, there is a righteousness that is supposedly acquired by keeping a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. There is a righteousness that is attempted but is completely failed at trying to keep the law perfectly from birth till death. Then there's dying, going to hell, burning forever and paying for your own sin, which is, not, which is completely unnecessary. You say, what's the other option? To trust in Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again and call upon him and ask him to save you and give you righteousness. You say, will he do it? That's what the Bible says. Now, I tell people that want to get saved that they've got to have three things to get saved. Are you ready? Number one, you have to be a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you can never be saved because only sinners can be saved. Number two, you have to have a mouth. Yes, preacher, I've got one of those. Number three, you have to have a heart, that heart, that mind, that heart and mind that believe on Jesus Christ. If you're a sinner and you have a mouth, and you have a heart, you're ready to be saved. Notice verse number 8 talks about the mouth and the heart. Verse 9, the mouth and the heart. Verse 10, the heart and the mouth. What do you do with your heart? You believe that Jesus died and rose again. You don't just say you do. You believe it. And you depend upon it like each one of you are depending upon that chair in particular to hold you up and give you rest. And with your mouth, you call upon Jesus Christ. You say, which is it? Is it a person that saves you or believing in a fact that saves you? Yes. It's believing in the fact that Jesus died and rose again and the person who died and rose again. That's what saves you. Some of you have made a profession, but there's been absolutely no life change. That's not the kind of salvation God's handing out. He hands out a salvation that makes you righteous, that makes you want to be righteous, that makes you not only righteous in God's sight, but makes you want to be righteous in man's sight. It it, it gives you a heart's desire. And if you've just made a profession, it's not true salvation. It's not true salvation. You know for, for a well and good fact that it's not. You ought to run to Jesus and get saved today. But if you've been saved, you ought to be telling every single person about the options that they have. Follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Keep the law perfectly from birth till death. Die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your sin. Or trust in Christ. Now, here's your four options. Which do you think is the right option? You say number four. Right. And have you made that choice? Have you decided to put your faith in Christ and call upon him? I'm glad to report that Fabrizio of 2010 in Italy, I met him in 2013, and again, again in 2015, we'd go out for coffee or he'd come to the service. And at the beginning of last year, the missionary said, I think he's ready to get saved. It took him a whole year to really think about it. He'd seen the missionaries' lives, and he'd said, boy, they have a consecrated life. I've got a brand new baby daughter. I want my daughter to grow up like their children are growing up. There's got to be something different. And just this last November while I was there, I went over to his home and he bowed his head and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Praise God. 
Only the Lord Jesus can do that. But he chose the fourth option. And I want you to know that when you choose the fourth option of trusting in Christ and Christ alone, instantly, permanently, gloriously, wonderfully, he comes true on his end of the bargain and saves. Would you bow with me in prayer?